In Daniel chapter 9, we'll see the first part, the majority of the chapter is Daniel's prayer to God. And then we see the last part of the chapter deals with Gabriel coming and giving Daniel insights. We'll unpack all this together this morning, but I need for you to kind of get a little bit of framework before we move forward. Are you all still here? All right, again, the second half of the book of Daniel, that's chapters 7 through 12, are dreams and visions that Daniel had that took place in the previous years, recorded in chapters 1 through 6. Now, in those earlier chapters, in those earlier years, we see that Daniel had been forcibly taken into captivity along with other uh, Israelites. And we see that he was trained to serve within the Babylonian Empire. Now, 70 years have passed, and Daniel is still serving as a trusted and skilled public servant, but no longer to the Babylonian Empire, but rather to the Persian Empire. Remember, God had told Daniel that Babylon would, be, uh, would fall to an inferior kingdom. And as we saw in chapter 5, that inferior kingdom were the Persians, the Persian Empire. Now, after Babylonian, Babylonia was captured, we see that Cyrus, the king of Persia, he appointed a man called Darius the Mede, to govern the territory which was previously the Babylonian Empire, uh, the area of Babylonia. I'm sharing all this background information because verse 1 of chapter 9 reads, In the first year of Darius, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. So Daniel, he had survived the collapse of the Babylonian Empire, and now he has risen up the ranks into the higher parts of the government within the new Persian Empire, for which Darius is now the overseer of that territory. Now, what we see from history is one of the first acts that Cyrus, that is the king of Persia, did was after he defeated Babylon, was to liberate these Jewish exiles and their vessels of worship that Nebuchadnezzar had taken captive, that we saw in the earlier part of the book. Cyrus, the king of Persia, allowed and even financed these exiles to return to Jerusalem and allowed them to begin the rebuilding of the temple. See, Cyrus's governmental philosophy was the exact opposite of that of Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus's philosophy was that this captivity that Nebuchadnezzar had imposed, well, it had the threat of creating civil unrest and rebellion. So his thought was, listen, I control the whole world anyway. Why not just let them go home? Let them go home. Let them worship their God makes no difference if they're here in Babylon or if they're in Jerusalem. To me, I control the whole everything anyway. So we see that the first wave of these exiles returned to Jerusalem. Now remember, this wasn't some festive family reunion. This wasn't some hero's homecoming. Uh, you have to remember that the land had been devastated, the temple was destroyed, and everything had been lying, laying in ruins for 70 years. 70 years. 
Now, families have been torn apart for decades. Homes had been demolished. The fields had laid barren. And these exiles returning to Jerusalem, well, it didn't take Daniel by surprise because he tells us in verses 2 and 3, in the first year of his reign, that is Darius, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel has known the whole time that it's going to be 70 years of exile. He's actually lived through it. So he knew that the time had come that they would return to Jerusalem. See, Daniel and his friends had either heard a reading from the prophet Jeremiah or maybe obtained a scroll from the prophet Jeremiah or possibly either both. So let me just, just quickly point out two places in Jeremiah's prophecy that talks about this 70 years and then the return. The first one is Jeremiah 25 where the prophet declares that the exile of Israel was due to their disobedience as what you've heard in Daniel's prayer even this morning. At the end of chapter 25, the prophet writes, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then another portion of Jeremiah's prophecy is, is chapter 29, which gives a message of hope. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah 29, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on, my, uh, call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And that's exactly what Daniel is doing in chapter 9. He's seeking the Lord with all of his heart. He is doing what he had been instructed from Jeremiah to do, was to seek the Lord with all of his heart. Now, th this bold confidence is a, that Daniel expresses in his dream is the type of confidence we need in our prayers as we live in our Babylon today. We need to boldly seek the Lord to bring restoration. We need to boldly seek the Lord to fix the broken things in our lives. Amen? Amen? And now you might be sitting there thinking, well, Pastor, I agree. I do need more spiritual confidence, and I really do need to believe that the Lord can fix the broken things in my life. But so how do I pray uh, those kind of prayers? Well, we're going to get to that in a moment, but I, but I want to just focus on something that I think will help you understand Daniel's prayers and God's answer to his prayer. Notice in chapter 9 that Daniel's prayer, his petition to God, is basically summarized in verses 19, 18 and 19, where Daniel prays, Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. 
Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, act, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. So in essence, what Daniel is praying for is for God to restore his people, Israel, and for God to restore his city, Jerusalem. Now, it's important to understand that that Israel is it's just not just any people and Jerusalem is not just any city. The, the nation of Israel was chosen by God to bring forth the Messiah. So it's important that God's people are restored back together so that the Messiah would come. Amen. And you have to understand the city of Jerusalem symbolizes the greatness of God's kingdom and the reign of God in this world and the reign of God in the, in the world to come. Now, remember, though, that it, for Daniel, for the most of his life, the, the, the city and the temple, they laid in ruins. For the majority of Daniel's life, the people of God have been scattered throughout the nations and been held in captivity. So on the outside, looking from the outside, God's kingdom, it was in ruins. From the outside, God's people, they were slaves to the world. And naturally, it would be easy for anybody looking from the outside to say, your God's dead. And his kingdom, it's non-existent. Why? Because the people are scattered and in bondage and the city and the temple lays in ruins. Your God's a joke. But Daniel held the word of God in his hands. And even though on the outside it looked like what they were talking about, on the inside, from a spiritual perspective, Daniel knew that God would do what he said he would do. And the people of God, guess what? Are already starting to return back to Jerusalem, just like the prophet Jeremiah and, and Isaiah told them that they would. So in essence, God was fulfilling his good promise to bring his people back to Jerusalem. And this brought Daniel to his knees. He's pleading with God to bring restoration. Why? So the Messiah would come. The Messiah, you know, the one who will bring the restoration of all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's who we want to come. We want the Messiah to come. Now, in chapter six, if you remember... And chapter 6, remember, is the same time frame that chapter 9 is written in, the first year of Darius. We're told that Daniel three times a day would go home to an upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. He would get on his knees, pray and give thanks to God. And I believe that this, what is recorded here in Daniel chapter 9 is one of those window prayers. Now we get to hear how Daniel prays. As I shared with you before, 
the scripture, scripture records that Daniel would pray where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. And I believe that that is part of holy record for a purpose. God is making the point when he included these words, the idea that where the windows open towards Jerusalem, he's making a point. And let me explain. We see that although Jerusalem of course, was a physical city with tremendous biblical history. The Bible uses Jerusalem in a theological or spiritual sense to identify God's kingdom. And although for most of Daniel's life the city of Jerusalem had been in ruins, the city still symbolized the greatness of God's kingdom and the reign of God in this world and the world to come. But Daniel needed to realign his faith for what he knew the word of God taught. He needed to have faith that God was not only going to return these exiles, restore Jerusalem, but he's going to do it so the Messiah would come. Jerusalem symbolized the kingdom of God, past, present, and future. And to pray where the windows were open towards Jerusalem, gave Daniel the opportunity three times a day to realign himself with God's direction for the world. It gave him the opportunity three times a day to renew himself to the purposes of God and the values of God in this world. When Daniel was praying where the windows opened towards Jerusalem, it wasn't as much of letting his prayers out as it was that God would come in. Daniel needed God to help him. He had served for 70 years in these corrupt governments and all this paganism and all this stuff going on. And here he is now and he really needs God to show up. Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 is an example of letting God into our hearts. It's an example showing us that we need to daily realign ourselves and our faith in Christ. The one who can restore all things, even the broken things in my life. Daniel took his need for realignment. It's very seriously. I, I love the way that the New American Standard translates verse 3. Daniel writes, So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Huh. I don't know about you, but it's very easy for me to neglect giving attention to the Lord. Daniel says, I gave my attention to the Lord. We allow so many things to distract us, to upset us, especially if we go through any times of transition. Re remember that Daniel had survived a transition of power from the Babylonians to the Persians. And this is a hundred times worse than changing of jobs or getting a new supervisor or getting some sort of new responsibilities at work. But we allow those things to disrupt us all the time. We just let, just let a little tweak happen in our lives and we quit giving attention to the Lord. All of our attention is upon that little gnat that was, uh, not, a little, uh, 
that came into our life, that little molecule that came into our life, and, and now that becomes the big deal. And we don't give attention to the Lord. Why do we do that? We're so prone to wonder, so prone to leave the God that we love. So we need to ask ourselves, what are the things right now in our lives, what's the thing in my life today that is distracting me from giving attention to the Lord? I need a realignment of faith. Many, people, many believers allow the world to dictate to them what they're going to give attention to. Have you noticed that? We let everybody in the world tell us what to give attention to. Instead of giving attention to the Lord. And especially if, if we think the Lord's taken too long. Then we become discouraged and we start believing that the Lord really doesn't love us and won't fulfill his promises to us. But let me just tell you, that's not the way Daniel was. He had been giving attention to the Lord for 70 years and he wasn't going to stop now. So what are the things that are distracting you from giving the Lord attention in your life. Daniel recognized his tendency to be distracted, so he supplements his prayers and supplications with these aids to keep him focused. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. <laughs> so, he, he, he fasts so that he might not be distracted by food. He puts aside comfortable clothing and puts on a, a burlap sack so he might not be distracted by worldly comforts. He applies ashes to his skin so he won't be distracted into some false sense of cleanliness before the Lord. Basically what we see is Daniel does everything spiritually and practically. Everything possible within his life to maintain his focus on his messianic restoration. And what I'm suggesting is we should do the same. We should follow his example. Spiritually and practically, we need to implement things in our life so that we can stay focused and give attention to the Lord. Now, Daniel was too old and probably too infirm to physically travel back to Jerusalem so he would devote himself to prayer and supplication as he realigned his faith in his Messiah. You know, Jesus asked a question, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? You know, that's a good question. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? I believe that if we follow Daniel's example of daily realignment of faith that we would truly, truly believe that God can fix the broken things in our lives, then we can answer the Lord's question with an emphatic yes. Yes, Lord, when you return, you will find faith on the earth because every day I have taken time to give you attention and to realign myself to the purposes of God in this world. 
Now, let's look at Daniel's prayer so we can learn how to pray with this confidence and, and, and have this restoration of broken things in our life. And when you look at Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, it's basically divided into two sections. Um, verses 4 through 15 is confession, and then verses 16 through 19 are petitions. And instead of going through Daniel's prayer verse by verse, verse by verse, let me, let me uh, highlight some specific attributes of Daniel's prayer that I believe that we, each of us, can implement into our lives so that we can have our faith realigned. Are you all here with me? First of all, Daniel was honest about sin. Now, I know people don't like to talk about sin. Maybe some churches don't even know how to spell it. But when you read Daniel's prayer, there is no doubt about it. He was honest about sin. Let, let, me, let me just read. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant love with those who love him and keeps him his commandments. We have sinned and have done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and princes and ancestors and all your people of the land. See, now Daniel knew that disobedience to the Lord is what caused the exile. <laughs> so it, it, he wasn't going to go back down that path again. And he certainly wasn't going to whitewash sin. I, I want you to notice that within his prayer, he identifies sin in 10 different ways. In 10 different ways. He, he states, done wrong, been wicked, rebelled, turned away, not listened, shame, unfaithfulness, did not obey and transgressed. <laughs> he wasn't going to let one stone go unturned. Daniel knew that sin comes in different shapes and sizes and, 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 and shades. But the bottom line was is sin is sin. So acknowledging sin is sin. Well, this is the first step towards realignment. Acknowledging sin as sin is our first step towards restoration in our life. Without recognition, there can be no restoration. Notice that Daniel doesn't play the victim card here. He makes clear confession like David did in Psalms 51 against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. It's like the prodigal son confessing to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and, and in your sight. It, Daniel doesn't shift the blame. He, he could have easily shifted the blame to Babylon for their arrogance and their corruption and their oppression and their violence and their injustice. It's their fault, God. But he doesn't shift the blame. It seems to me that Daniel knew that it was time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And we need to quit judging the world and start looking at ourselves. Listen, no sinner needs to tell you, needs for you to tell them how wicked of a sinner they are. They know it quite well and they're very happy with it. I don't know about you, but that's exactly the way I was before I was a Christian. I was very, very, very happy to sin and I really look for every opportunity to do it. Listen, let's quit judging the world and let's let 
judgment begin in the house of God. And then restoration will come. All right. Preacher's not done yet. Don't, 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 don't clap. I know you're already given the, your entrance fee. but yeah. <laughs> Secondly, Daniel's prayer is based upon God's character. Uh, we, we need a fresh glimpse of God. Every day. Listen how Daniel describes God's character. The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant love. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. The Lord our God is righteous in everything he does because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake. My God, do not delay. Because it's your city and your people that bear your name. He's pleading with God based upon God's character. And this is how restoration comes. Listen, you and I will never be restored if we keep on looking at us. I'm a failure, so are you. I need to see God high and lifted up. I need a full glimpse of God. And that's what Daniel does here. Thirdly, Daniel's prayer is based on God's word. The shorter catechism asks the question, what rule has God given so that we might direct our prayers? The idea is, how do we pray? And the, the first part of the answer is, the whole word of God is to be of use in the direction of our prayer. So the idea is to stay away from meaningless repetition and stuff like that. So you pick a psalm and pray through that psalm. You know? And for, because of that, what you're going to do is you're going to basically really get a glimpse of God and you're going to get a real sense of what God's going to do on your behalf. And you're going to let the word of God direct you. And, and Daniel knew that. You look at this prayer, it's saturated with scriptures. Echoing from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, from the Psalms, and of course from Jeremiah. But this was Daniel's own urgent, intense, intimate engagement with God, but he used the Word of God to frame his prayers. Like any earthly father loves when they hear their kids say, it's just like my daddy always told me. So, God loves to hear his Word spoken back to him. God loves to hear his word spoken back to him. And that's what Daniel does here. It's a good model to follow if we really want restoration and renewal in our life. Now, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer... Gabriel, that rude character, no, he's an angel of the Lord, interrupts me. And he came, the man came, I, I saw him earlier in the vision, we saw him last week, came in a swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. So it was in, towards the evening, and Gabriel comes, you know, the roadrunner, if you would. And then it goes on, he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I know, excuse me, Daniel, I have now come 
to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. <laughs> this is one of those behind-the-scenes passages in the Bible. It's, it's kind of reminiscent in a different context, but kind of reminiscent of, of Job in the first chapter of Job, where you see this behind-the-scenes stuff where we don't really understand the whole spiritual dynamics of things. But, but here what we see is that God not only heard Daniel's prayer, but he also sent his answer as soon as Daniel began praying. Isn't that good news? As soon as you begin to pray, God is sending his answer. He loves you that much. It's kind of like a, a, a kid coming home from school and knows that the child wants macaroni and cheese. So what does the mom do? She fixes macaroni and cheese before the kid ever gets home from school. God knows your prayers even before you begin asking. This is exactly what Isaiah told us. Before they call, I will answer, declares the Lord. While they are still speaking, I will hear. It's exactly what Jesus taught us. So he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. It's exactly what the Apostle John tells us. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Praise be to God. This, we know that God's going to give us an answer. An answer. So what was the Lord's answer to Daniel's prayer? Again, let me recap here. You guys were late. We started on time. All right. Remember, Daniel understood from the scrolls of Jeremiah that the exile would last for 70 years. Daniel had lived through those 70 years, and now Israel is beginning to return to their homeland to restore Jerusalem. They're basically standing at the threshold of world history that God was going to send his Messiah. Now, this prospect of restoration caused Daniel to confess his sin and Israel's sin and to ask God to restore his city and his people without delay. But Gabriel says in verse 24, Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. What? What's that? God's answer to Daniel, I believe, was for him not to become fixated on the 70 years. And not become fixated on the return of the exiles or the restoration of Israel. I believe that God wanted Daniel to think of the bigger picture here. I think Daniel was so, so, so spiritually excited about the fact that the, that the exile was over and Israelites were getting to return that he thought that was the big deal. But God is saying, no, that's not the big deal. In essence, what Gabriel is saying is, is, is stop thinking about the 70 and start thinking about the 77s that are decreed for your people and for your holy city. In essence, God is telling Daniel to stop thinking about the 70 years and start thinking about the 70 times 7. 
which equals 490. Gabriel is making it clear in verse 24 that the 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of, and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. What he's saying is six, six things are going to happen here at the completion of these 77s. There's going to be a finish of transgressions, an end to sin, an atonement will be made for all wickedness. There will be a, a, an everlasting righteousness giving. All the dreams and visions and prophecies are going to be sealed up. Prophecies will cease and God himself will anoint his Holy One. This is my beloved Son and who I am well pleased. Praise be to God. So most scholars believe that verse 24 is describing the redemptive outcomes of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Most don't bother with that. That, that seems pretty clear. But I want you to see that, that Gabriel is making it clear to Daniel that the return and the restoration of Israel after the 70 years, that is not the consummation of the kingdom of God. No, after 77, the spiritual foundation will be laid in Christ and the kingdom of God will reign when the Lord Jesus Finishes transgressions, put the end to all sin, atones for all wickedness, brings an everlasting righteousness, seals up all visions and prophecies, and the Father himself anoints him as the son of the living God. How much I wish that it would just stop there. But it doesn't. I know this part of Daniel is like eating a big steak every Sunday. But I just want to let you know that in verses 25, 26, and 27, Daniel gives more detail behind these 77s. And he divides it into three smaller units. First, he describes a unit of 49. Second, he describes a unit of 434. And then finally, a unit of 7. And when you add up all those numbers, you know what you get? 490. 490. Keep that in your head. Now, verses 25, 26, and 27 has caused more confusion, contradictions, and conversion, uh, conversions, controversies than almost any other portion of the Bible. There are so many interpretations behind verses 25, 26, and 27. And all this confusion, for me, basically goes against our rule number three. Remember the last couple of weeks I've given you some rules, ground rules for interpretation of prophecy? Remember rule number three? The prophecies of Daniel must be understood in relationship to and in light of the rest of Scripture without causing contradiction or confusion. <laughs> we would need a 12-week course to unravel. All the different views and all the different opinions on verses 25, 26, and 27, and you would still be confused. Trust me. On a personal note, my undergrad, in my undergrad, I was taught from a particular viewpoint 
on these verses. And then in my graduate studies, I was taught a, a totally different viewpoint on these verses of scriptures. I've spent hours, probably too many hours, trying to study the different views. And let me just tell you, I'm confused. Which isn't spiritually healthy. I don't read the Bible to be confused. So, in an attempt to stay out of the theological weeds, in an attempt to stay away of causing more confusion, I'm going to share with you a simple explanation. Remember, that was rule five. Often the simplest interpretation is the safest and most edifying. And that's what I want to share with you right now. Seventy-sevens. The simple explanation behind the seventy-sevens is not necessarily describing a chronological, clock-like calculation. But rather, it represents God's perfect redemption fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let me explain. Seven has always been symbolic, a mark of God's completion. In the opening pages of Scripture, God completed his work of creation in a span of six days, and then he rested when? Seventh day. The seventh day was set aside as a day of rest to celebrate God's perfect completion of creation. We call it the Sabbath. Now, later on in biblical history, God ordained that every seven years, that would be a sabbatical year where the land would rest. And then he goes on to say that after seven sabbatical years, then that one year, the next year would be set aside as the year of Jubilee. Are you all here? All right. So I know you, 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 you miss an hour of sleep. But anyway, let's, let's get it straight. Every seventh day, what? Sabbath. Every seventh year, what? A sabbatical year. Every, and every seventh sabbatical year, what? The year of Jubilee. Now, you need to understand that the, in the, on the year of Jubilee, all property was returned to its original owner. All slaves were released. All debts were canceled. And the land would lie in rest. The, the year of Jubilee was the year when justice, freedom, pardon, release, and restoration were experienced by all of God's people. So it became no surprise that the year of Jubilee began, began to symbolize the ultimate redemption, release, and restoration that God would accomplish for his people through the Messiah. Do you see it yet? When Gabriel declares that 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city, what he is saying is that God has decreed a perfect completion of his work of redemption. Not just one seven, not just seven sevens, not after seven sabbatical years, but 77s. God's perfect completion of all things. God's perfect jubilee in Christ Jesus. He is saying to Daniel, Daniel, don't be fixated on the 70. Understand that God is going to bring about the completion of all things. 77s 
490. And that's when he's going to bring forth his Messiah and bring complete restoration of all things on earth and in heaven. Thanks be to his holy name. It would be in Christ, in the completion of God's perfect uh, jubilee, 490, 77, that God will finish transgressions. He'll put an end to sin. He'll atone for wickedness. He'll bring an everlasting righteousness. He will seal up all visions and prophecies, and he will anoint his most holy, our Lord Jesus Christ. The simple interpretation is that the 77s is a representation of God's complete redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that edifies me. That's all I need to know. I don't want to get in the weeds. In the 77s, Christ will reconcile me to himself. He will release all of us. From the slavery of this world, he'll cancel all of our debts as far as the east is from the west. And we, he will allow us to enter into his holy rest. In essence, Daniel was, Gabriel is telling Daniel that there will be a day in the future when God's people will enjoy God's perfect jubilee through Christ. And on that day, the people of God will shout, yes, we're free Free forever, we're free. Come and join the song of the redeemed. Oh man, that's good news. When you've been in the fog so long, a clear day looks so beautiful, doesn't it? And I'm telling you, the only thing you need to know about these closing verses in chapter 9 of Daniel is God has fulfilled his perfect jubilee in Christ Jesus. For Daniel, he looked forward. But for us, it's today, right now. We live in the midst of God's perfect jubilee through Christ. Thanks be to his holy name. In conclusion, the last two Sundays, we'll, we've considered two of Daniel's dreams, one of the four beasts and then the ram and the goat last week. And I want to remind you that at the conclusion of these dreams, Daniel was, was emotionally and physically drained. At the end of chapter 7, he writes, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale. At the conclusion of chapter 8, Daniel writes, I, Daniel, was wore out and laid exhausted for several days. But when we get to the end of chapter 9, there's no mention of him being exhausted. What? Why not? Remember at the beginning of chapter 9, we find Daniel sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But when we get to the end of chapter 9, there's there no mention of mourning at all. Why? Because Daniel understood that the perfect jubilee is going to come. There's no reason to mourn. There's no reason to sit in asphalt. There's no reason at all. The perfect jubilee through Christ is coming for his people. Hallelujah. Amen. I believe that, God, that Daniel finally was able to enter into God's perfect rest through Christ. And he discovered that God provides for those who grieve in Zion a crown of beauty instead of ashes, an oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despairs. And brothers and sisters, if you don't get it, get it right here. God's perfect jubilee 
has come. And we live in it. Our Redeemer has come and set us free from slavery. The debt of our sin that we owe to God was paid on the cross. When Jesus died on behalf, we are no longer in bondage. We are no longer slaves to sin. We've been freed by Christ so that we can truly enter into the rest that God gives us. That we don't have to keep on laboring, but we can rest in the perfection of Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, rejoice with me this morning that God has brought, by, brought his perfect jubilee for us to experience. And let us together seek him to restore the broken things in our lives to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we come thanking you so much, not only about the lessons of prayer that we learned from Daniel, but, Lord, we want to thank you that even in the midst of confusion, we can find hope. And, Lord, today we come to you asking you, Lord, to give us a strong sense of confidence in the perfect jubilee of Christ and help us not to take it for granted. Help us as we live in our Babylon, Lord, to realign ourselves day by day in faith believing in your kingdom and your purposes in this world. Minister to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.